Section 12 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 6. The Unbeaten Tracks of Khorasan. Part 2. About 2 p.m. is reached a much larger oasis containing a couple of villages. Beyond this are diverging trails with no one anywhere near to ask the way. Choosing the one that seems to take the most southerly course, the trail continues hard and rideable for a few more miles, when it becomes lost in a sea of shifting sand. Firmer ground is visible in the distance ahead, and on it are seen the small black tents of a few families of Iliouts. Considerable difficulty is experienced in getting through the sand, but the width is not great, and the dim trail is recovered on the southern side with the assistance of a chance acquaintance. This chance acquaintance is an Iliot goat-herd, whom I unwittingly scared nearly out of his senses, and whose gratitude at finding himself confronting a kindly disposed human being instead of some supernatural agent of destruction is very great indeed. He was slumbering at his post this gentle guardian of a herd of goats, stretched at full length on the ground. Surveying his unconscious form for a moment, and carried away by the animal-like simplicity of his face, I finally shout, Hoy! Opening his eyes with a start, and seeing a white-helmeted head surveying him over the top of a weird, bristling object, the natural impulse of this simple-hearted child of the desert is to seek safety in flight. Recovering his head, however, upon hearing reassuring words, he adopts the propitiatory course of rushing impulsively forward and kissing my hand. Spending his whole life here on the lonely desert in the constant society of a herd of goats, rarely seeing a stranger or meeting anybody to speak to outside the very limited members of his own tribesmen in yonder tents, he seems to have almost lost the power of conversation. His replies are mere guttural gruntings, as though the ever-present music of bleeding goats has had the lamentable effect of neutralizing the naturally superior articulation of a human being and dragging his powers of utterance down almost to the ignoble level of Mbaha. My small stock of Persian words seem also to be altogether lost upon his warped and blunted powers of understanding and it is only by an elaborate use of pantomime that i finally succeed in making my wants understood he possesses the simple hospitable instincts of a child of nature's broad solitudes he leads the way for over a mile to put me on the now scarcely perceptible continuation of the trail and with a worshipfully anxious face he begs of me to go and stay overnight at the tents my road leads right past a little cluster of black tents. Several women outside collecting stunted brushwood greet me with the silent, wondering stare of people incapable of any deeper display of emotion than the animals they daily associate with and subsist upon. Half-naked children stare at me in a dreamy sort of way from beneath the tents. Even the dogs seem to have lost their canine propensity to resent innovations. The result no doubt of the same dreary, uneventful round of existence in which the faculty of resentment has become dwarfed by the general absence of anything new or novel to bark at. 
The tents of the Iliouts are small and inelegant as compared with the tents of well-to-do cords, and the physique and general appearance of the Iliouts themselves is vastly inferior to the magnificent fellows that we found loafing about the headquarters of the Kurdish sheikhs in Asia Minor and Western Persia. The trail I am now following is evidently but little used, requiring the tracking instincts of an Indian almost to keep it in view. It leads due southward across the broad, level wastes of the Gunabad Desert, the surface of which affords most excellent wheeling, even where there is not the faintest indication of a trail. Much of the surface partakes of the character of bare mud-flats that afford as smooth a wheeling surface as the alkali flats of the west. The surface is covered all over with crisp sun-peelings, the thin, shiny surface of mud, baked and curled upward by the fierce heat of the sun, and which now crackle like myriads of dry twigs beneath the wheel. Occasionally I pass through the thousands of acres of wild tulips, and scattering bands of antelopes are observed feeding in the distance. The bulbous roots of a great many of the tulips have been eaten by herbivorous animals of epicurean tastes our fastidious friends the antelopes no doubt the flags are bitten off and laid aside the tender white interior of the bulb alone is extracted and eaten the less tender outside layers being left in the hole it is a glorious ride across the gunabad desert a ten-mile pace being quite possible most of the way sometimes the trail is visible and sometimes it is not with but the vaguest idea of the distance to the next abode of man, or the nature of the country ahead, I bowl along southward, led by the strange infatuation of a pathfinder traversing terra incognita, and rejoicing in the sense of boundless freedom and unrestraint that comes of speeding across open country where nature still holds her primitive sway. Twice I wheel past the ruins of wayside umbars, whose now utterly neglected condition and the well-nigh obliterated trail point out that I am traveling over a route that has for some reason been abandoned. A variation from the otherwise universal level occurs in the shape of a cluster of low, mound-like hills, whose modest proportions are made gorgeous and interesting by flakes of mica that glint and glisten in the sunlight as though the hills might be strewn with precious jewels. The sun is getting pretty low, and no signs of human habitation anywhere about, but the wheeling is excellent, and the termination of the lake-like level is observable in the distance ahead in favor of low hills. Between my present position and the hills, the prospect is that of continuous level ground. Imagine my astonishment, then, at shortly finding myself standing on the banks of a stream about thirty yards wide, its yellow waters flowing sluggishly along twenty feet below the surface of the desert. The abrupt nature of its banks, and an evidently unpleasant habit of becoming unfordable after a rain, tell the story of the abandoned trail I have been following. Whether three feet deep or thirty, the thick, muddy character of its moving water refuses to reveal, as standing on the bank, I ruefully survey the situation. No time is to be lost in idle speculation, unless I want to stretch my supperless form on the barren, brown bosom of Mother Earth, and dream the dreary visions conjured up by the clamorous demands of unsatisfied nature. For the sun has well-nigh sunk below the horizon. 
Clambering down the almost perpendicular bank, I succeed, after several attempts, in discovering a passage that can be forded, and so, wrapping my clothing, money, revolver, etc., tightly within my rubber coat, I essay to carry the bundle across. All goes well until I reach a point just beyond the middle of the stream, when the bed of the stream breaks through with my weight and lets me down into a watery cavern to which there appears to be no bottom. The bed of the stream, at this point, seems to be a mere thin shell, beneath which there are other aqueous depths, and fearful lest the undercurrent should carry me beneath the crust and prevent me recovering myself, I loose the bundle and regain the surface without more ado. The rubber covering preserves the clothes from getting much of a wetting, and I swim and wade to the opposite shore with them without much trouble. To get the bicycle over, however, looks a far more serious undertaking for to break through in this way with a bicycle held aloft would probably result in getting entangled in the wheel and held under the water it would be equally risky to take that important piece of property apart and cross over with it piece by piece for the loss of any part would be a serious matter here several new places are tried but this one is the only passage that can be forded my rope is also too short to be of avail in swimming over and pulling the bicycle across Finally, after many attempts, I succeed in finding a ford immediately alongside where I had broken through, and after thoroughly testing the strength of the crust by standing and jumping up and down, I conclude to risk carrying the wheel. Owing to the extreme difficulty of following the same line, it is scarcely necessary to remark that every step forward is made with extreme caution, and every foot of the riverbed traversed tested as thoroughly as possible, under the circumstances, before fully trusting my weight upon it. Once the crust breaks through again, letting me down several inches, but, fortunately, the second bottom is here but a matter of inches below the first shell and i am able to recover myself without dropping the bicycle and the southern bank is reached without further misadventure no trail is visible on the crackled surface of the mud flat across the river as i continue in a general southward course hoping to find it again ere it becomes too dark soon a man riding on a camel is descried some distance off to the right and deeming it advisable to seek for information at his hands i shape my course toward him and give chase becoming conscious of a strange-looking object careering over the plain in his direction the man surveys me for a moment from the back of his awkward steed and then steers his ship of the desert in another direction the lumbering camel is quickly overtaken, however, and the gallant but apprehensive rider makes a stand and threateningly waves me away. Observing the absence of the familiar long-barreled gun, I persist in my purpose of interviewing him regarding the road, and finally learn from him that the village of Gunabad is eight miles farther south, and that the trail will be easier followed when I reach the hills had he been armed with a gun there would have been more or less risk in approaching him in the dusky shades of evening on so strange a vehicle of travel but before i depart he alights from his camel for the characteristic purpose of kissing my hand a couple of miles brings me to the hills where my riding abruptly comes to an end the hills are simply huge waves of sand and dust collected on the shore of the desert and held together by a growth of coarse shrubs 
The dim light of the young moon proves insufficient for my purpose of keeping the trail, and the difficulty in trundling through the sand compels me to seek the cold comfort of a night in the desert after all. Gunabad appears to be a sort of general rendezvous for wandering tribes of Iliouts that roam the desert country around with their flocks and herds, the tent population of the place far outnumbering the soil-tilling people of the village itself. A complete change is here observable in both the climate and the people. North of the desert, the young barley is in a very backward state but at gunabad both wheat and barley are headed out and the sun strikes uncomfortably hot as soon as it rises above the horizon it is a curious change in so short a distance the men affect the long dangling turban end of the afghans and the women blossom forth in the gayest of colours the people are refreshingly simple-hearted and honest as compared with the knowing customers along the teheran meshed road sand-hills scattering fields and villages and a bewildering time generally in keeping my course characterize the experience of the forenoon the people of one particular village passed through are observed to be all descendants of the prophet wearing monster green turbans and green cammerbunds the women are dressed in white throughout white socks white pantalettes and white shrouds they move silently about more like ghostly visitants than human beings. Distinctly different types of people from the majority are sometimes met with, full-bearded, very dark-skinned men, whose bared breasts betray the fact that they are little less hairy than a bison. Beyond the sand-hills, the villages and the cultivation is a stony plain extending for sixteen miles, a gradual upward slant to a range of mountains at the base of the mountains an area of dark green colouring denotes the presence of fields and orchards and the whereabouts of the important village of kakh beautifully terraced wheat-fields and vineyards and peach and pomegranate orchards in full bloom gladden the eyes and present a most striking contrast to the stony plain as the vicinity of kakh is reached and another pleasing and conspicuous feature is the dome of a mesjid mosaic with bright-colored tiles the good people of kakh are inquisitive even above their fellows if such can be possible but they are well behaved and mild-mannered with it after taking the ragged edge off their curiosity by riding up and down the main thoroughfare of the village the keeper of a mercantile affair locks the bicycle up in his room and i spend the evening hobnobbing with him and his customers in his little stall-like place of business kakh is famous for the production of little seedless raisins like those of smyrna bushels of these are kicking about the place and our merchant friend becomes filled with the wild idea that i might perchance buy the lot a moment's reflection would convince him that ten bushels of sickly sweet raisins would be about the last thing he could sell to a person travelling on a bicycle but his supply of raisins is evidently so outrageously ahead of the demand that his ambition to reduce his stock obscures his better judgment like a cloud and places him in the position of a drowning man clutching wildly at a straw considerable opium is also grown hereabouts and the people make it into sticks about the size of a carpenter's pencil hundreds of these also occupy the merchant's shelves he seems to have very little that isn't grown in the neighborhood except tea and loaf sugar ayats 
who were absent in their fields when I arrived, come crowding around the store in the evening, bothering me to ride. The shopkeeper bids them wait till my departure in the morning, telling them I am not a looty, riding simply to let people see. He provides me with a door that fastens inside, and I am soon in the land of dreams. Early in the morning I am awakened by people pounding at the door and shouting, Atab, Sahib, Atab! It is the belated riots of yesterday eve. Thoroughly determined to be on hand and see the start, they are letting me know that it is sunrise. A boisterous mountain stream, tearing along at racing speed over a rocky bed a hundred and fifty yards wide, provides cock with perpetual music, and furnishes travelers going southward with an interesting time getting across. This stream must very frequently become a raging torrent, quite impassable, for although it is little more than knee-deep this morning, the swift water carries down stones as large as a brick that strike against the ankles and well-nigh knocks one off his feet. Beyond Cock, the trail winds its circuitous way through a mountainous region, following one little stream to its source, climbing over the crest of an intervening ridge and down the bed of another stream. It is but an indistinct donkey trail at best, and the toilsome mountain climbing reminds me vividly of the worst parts of Asia Minor. Toward nightfall, I wander into the village of Nukab, a small place perched among the hills, inhabited by kindly disposed, hospitable folks. Having seen the unhappy effect of the Governor-General's letter of recommendation at Torbet-e-Hyderi, the desirous of seeing what effect it might, perchance, have on the more simple-hearted people of Nukab, I present it to the little, old, blue-gowned Khan of the village. Like a very large proportion of his people, the Khan is suffering from chronic ophthalmia, but he peruses the letter by the glimmer of a blaze of camel-thorn. The intentions of these people were plainly most hospitable from the beginning, so that it is difficult to determine about the effect of the letter. Willing hands sweep out the quarters assigned for my accommodation, the improvised besoms filling the place with a cloud of dust. The doorway is ruthlessly mutilated to make it large enough to admit the bicycle. Numods are spread, and a crackling fire soon fills the room with mingled smoke and light. The people are allowed to circulate freely in and out to see me, but only the Khan himself and a few of the leading lights of the village are permitted to indulge in the coveted privilege of spending the entire evening in my company. The village is ransacked for eatables to honor their guest, resulting in a bountiful repast of eggs, pilau, mast, and shira. Away down here among the mountains and out of the world, these people see nothing more curious than their next-door neighbors from year to year. They take the most ridiculous interest in such small affairs as my notebook and pencil, and everything about me seems to strike them as peculiar. The entire village, as usual, assembles to see me dispose of the eatables so generously provided and later in the evening there is another highly expected assembly waiting around out of curiosity to see what sort of a figure a ferengi cuts at his evening devotions poor benighted followers of the false prophet how little they comprehend us christians suddenly it seems to dawn upon the mind of the simple old khan that being a stranger in a strange land i might perchance be a trifle mixed about my bearings and so he kindly indicates the direction of Mecca. 
when informed that the Ingilis never prostrate themselves toward Mecca and say, Allah il Allah, they evince the greatest astonishment, and then the strange, unnatural impiousness of people who never address themselves to Allah, nor prostrate toward the holy city, impresses their simple minds with something akin to the feeling entertained among certain of ourselves toward extra daredevil characters, and they seem to take a deeper and kindlier interest in me than ever. The disappointment at not seeing what I look like at prayers is more than offset by the additional novelty imparted to my person by the, to them, strange and sensational omission. They seem greatly disappointed to learn that I am going away in the morning. They have plenty of tok-mi-morg, pilau, mast, and shira, they say, plenty of everything, and they want me to stay with them always. Revolving the matter over in my mind, I am forcibly struck with the calm, reposeful state of Nukab society, and what a brilliant field of enterprise for an ambitious person to the place would be. Turned Mussulman, joined in wedlock to three or four sore-eyed village damsels, worshipped as a sort of strange, superior being, Hakim and eye-water dispenser, consulted as a walking storehouse of occult philosophy on all occasions, endeavoring to educate the people up to habits of all-round cleanliness, chiding the mothers for allowing the flies to swarm and devour the poor little baby's eyes. All this for Tok Memorg, Pilau, Mast, and Shira twice or thrice a day. Involuntarily, my eye roams over the gladsome countenances of the eligible portion of my female auditors, as though driven by this whimsical flight of fancy to the necessity of at once making a choice. There is only one present with any pretense to comeliness, and embarrassed, no doubt, by the extreme tenderness of the stranger's glance. She shrinks from view behind an aged and ugly person whom I take to be her mother. Everybody stops to see what a Ferengi looks like on de Chabillet, and when I am snugly sandwiched between the quilts provided, they gather about me and peer curiously down into my face. An enterprising youth is on hand at daybreak making a fire, but it is eight o'clock before I am able to get away. They seem to be mildly scheming among themselves to keep me with them as long as possible. The trail winds and twists about among the mountains, following in the train of a wayward little stream, then leads over a pass and emerges, in the company of another stream, upon a slanting plateau leading down to an extensive plain. Rounding the last spur of the hills, I find myself approaching a crowd numbering at least a hundred people. Hats are waved gleefully. Voices are lifted up in joyous shouts of welcome, and the whole company give way to demonstrations of delight at my approach. A minute later, I find myself surrounded by the familiar faces of the population of Nukab. My road has followed a roundabout course of six or seven miles, and our enterprising friends have taken a short cut over the hills to intercept me at this point, where they can watch my progress across the open plain. They have brought along the kind old Khan's kalyan and tobacco bag, and the wherewithal to make me a parting glass of tea. Eight or ten miles of fair wheeling across the plain, through the isolated village of Mohammedabad, and the trail loses itself among the rank, dead stalks of the asafoetida plant that here characterizes the vegetation of the broad, level sweep of plain. 
The day is cloudy, and with no trail visible, my compass has to be brought into requisition. Though oft-times finding it useful, it is the first time I have found this article to be really indispensable so far on the tour. The atmosphere of an asafoetida desert is among those things that can better be imagined than described. The aroma of the fetid gum is wafted to and fro, and assails the nostrils in a manner quite the reverse of Araby the blessed. The plant is a sturdy specimen among the annuals. Its straight, upright stem is but three or four feet high, but often measuring four inches in diameter, and it not infrequently defies the blasts of the Khorasan winter and the upheaving thaws of spring, and preserves its upright position for a year after its death. The thick, dead stems and branching tops of last year's plants are seen by the thousands, sturdily holding their ground among the rank young shoots of the new growth. Mountainous territory is again entered during the afternoon, and shortly after sunset I arrive at a cluster of wretched mud hovels, numbering about two dozen. Here my reception is preeminently commercial and businesslike, the people requiring payment in advance for the bread and eggs, and rogan provided. A nonsensical custom among the people of southern Khorasan is to offer one's food in turn to everybody present and say bismillah before commencing to eat it yourself although a ridiculous piece of humbug it is generally my custom to fall in with the peculiar ways of the country and for days past have invariably offered my food to scores of people whom i knew beforehand would not take it the lack of courtesy at this hamlet in exacting payment in advance would seem naturally to preclude the right to expect the following of courteous customs in return in this however i find myself mistaken for my omission to say bismillah not only fills these people with astonishment but excites unfavourable comment the doorways of the houses here are entirely too small to admit the bicycle and that much enduring vehicle has to take its chances on the low roof with a score or so inquisitive and meddlesome goats that instantly gather around it as though revolving in their pugnacious minds some fell scheme of destruction. Outside are several camels tied to their respective pack-saddles, which have been taken off and laid on the ground. Before retiring for the night, it occurs to my mind that the total depravity of a goat's appetite bodes ill for the welfare of my saddle, and that, everything considered, the bicycle could perhaps be placed safer on the ground, in addition to regarding the saddle as a particularly toothsome morsel, the goat's venturesome disposition might lead them to clamoring about on the spokes and generally mixing things up. So, taking it down, I stand it up against the wall and place a heap of old pack-saddle frames and camel trappings before it as an additional precaution. During the night, some of the camels break loose and are heard chasing one another around the house, knocking things over and bellowing furiously. Apprehensive of my wheel, I get up and find it knocked over, but fortunately uninjured. I then take off the saddle and return it to the tender care and consideration of the goats. Four men and a boy share with me a small, unventilated den about ten feet square. One of them is a camel-driving descendant of the Prophet, and sings out, Allah il Allah, several times during the night in his sleep. 
Another is the patriarch of the village, a person guilty of cheating the undertaker, lo, these many years, and who snuffles and catches his breath. The other two men snore horribly, and the boy gives out unmistakable signs of a tendency to follow their worthy example. Altogether, it is anything but a restful night. End of section 12 Recording by William Tomko.